It'll be on the screen if you want to follow along there. Uh, Mark chapter 5, verses 21, just to the end of the chapter. We're reading from the NIV version today. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately after, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered. And yet you ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James and John the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the, sand, by the hand and said to her, Talitha koum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and he told them to give her something to eat. Mark 5. Uh, if you didn't pick up already, there's a lot of a theme of busyness going around this morning. So uh, questions for the audience. Uh, who here, if I asked you, would say, the week just gone was a busy week? Yeah, a few. Uh, all right, what if I said, just in general, do you have enough time in your day? Yes, no. Hands up if no. Brilliant. That's kind of what I was looking for. The Bureau of Statistics did a social study in 2020 and found that 33, one third of Australians uh, reported always or often feeling stretched for time. And there is, of course, a case where being organised and productive and hardworking are a good and reasonable thing that we can, we can have, we can be. But this statistic seems to be saying that there's perhaps more of a 
rest-resistant, overworking kind of busyness that's more consuming us than helpful for us. Another article I was reading about busyness said that roughly 4 million Australians don't usually take a lunch break in their workday. And it seems that there's this huge culture of busyness around us, of time-poor, calendar-driven, task-oriented, overtired workaholics whose days just aren't long enough and whose task lists are too long. And I know that I'm right there in those statistics. I've had a couple of days this week I didn't take a lunch break. So to whatever degree you feel like you're in that culture, you probably felt at least once, based on hand-raising in this week, that you didn't have enough time. But that is the good news of today's story, that Jesus always has time. For all the business we find ourselves in, in this world, The story today shows us that the kingdom of God has a different rhythm. And in this story, Jesus is showing a time-poor people that his kingdom has time for everyone. It isn't rushed and it won't miss an opportunity. Jesus always has time to bring people to faith in him. And this story kind of comes almost like a response to Mark 4. It happens right after that. Uh, numerical from last week that Jesus had been teaching what the kingdom of God is like and then in a bit of a demonstration of his power and authority he calms a storm and the disciples are left asking each other who is this? And I think that it's kind of happened this way in the story to help us see the question asked and then answered. That is, Jesus teaches what the kingdom of God is like and then goes out and shows us. When the disciples ask who is this, we see who Jesus is. And it's worth spoiling the ending of the, that this story to show the point kind of up front. The kingdom of God is timeless and eternal. It is a kingdom of life for all who have faith in Jesus. So keep these ideas of time and faith in mind as we consider what the kingdom of God is like in this story about a bleeding woman, a dying daughter, and all of humanity. So I'm going to start by looking at the bleeding woman first but we still need to set the scene for her situation. So the whole story begins in verse 21, when Jesus had crossed over again in a boat to the other side of the lake, and a large crowd gathers around him. One of the synagogue leaders named Jairus comes and falls at Jesus' feet, pleading earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying, please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and lived. So we meet Jairus, the man who is desperate to have his dying daughter healed. And the words he uses to describe his daughter, it's like saying to Jesus, she's on death's door, please, any, any breath could be her last. She has minutes, even seconds to live. The situation is dire, but the man places his faith in Jesus. And so when Jesus agrees to go with him, it's like a moment of, of hope for the man. There may not be much time left, but Jesus is coming. The problem is, however, that the crowd continues to press around Jesus, and it's in this crowd that we meet the bleeding woman. And even though Jairus was first in with his request to have Jesus heal his dying daughter, and his request was urgent, we get interrupted by this woman who we learn has been suffering for 12 years with an unending bleeding. And there's a lot that can be said and has been said about the nature of her condition, but two things most important for today. First of all, Jewish law says, Leviticus 15, her condition means that she is unclean. As long as she suffers with this bleeding, anything she sits on, unclean. Her, unclean. 
This means terrible social, emotional, and economic suffering in addition to the physical suffering itself. Second of all, she is all out of options and hope. Mark uh, 5.26 says that she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors, spent all she had, and instead of getting better, she got worse. I mean, no one would associate her, no one would touch her, no one would provide for her, no one's caring for her. She has no one and nothing left. Her situation is as hopeless as it can get. I mean, surely she's too far gone. Her Her condition just seems all too hard to deal with. And there's this implicit question left hanging in the story. Would Jesus have time for an unclean woman like this? Certainly, from the woman's perspective, you can imagine it would just be so easy to just give up. There seems like little choice left. But then news of Jesus comes. This amazing man who does miracles and heals, this teacher and prophet. We know that news has been spreading because Mark said back in chapter 2 that Jesus was healing many who had various diseases. And then by chapter 3, he had healed so many people that there were crowds of people with diseases pushing forward to touch him. And this is her glimmer of hope. Surely she thinks, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Even though everyone thinks her situation is hopeless, she has faith in Jesus. So much so that she touches him. And when she she touches Jesus, contrary to what anyone of the time or that culture would think should happen, that her uncleanness is put on Jesus, the opposite happens. God sees her faith. And a miracle occurs. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. She is made clean and well. And here's a moment that if we were in Jesus' shoes, our busy, overworked, overtired minds might have missed. But we see that Jesus is so in tune with God at work in the world. He notices God's power move to heal this woman in her moment of faith. It says, at once... Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. And he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? And the disciples kind of say, Jesus, really? In this crowd, everyone, everyone touched you. (laughs) We're all touching you right now. But Jesus presses the issue. He keeps asking. He takes time to hold everything up, including the urgent task of going to heal Jairus' dying daughter so that he can address this woman and her faith. And so when she comes before him, trembling with fear and confessing her story, he's not disgusted by her once unclean state. Her shame, her situation, her suffering, it doesn't offend Jesus. He has time for her. He didn't allow her to slip away and remain anonymous. He, he forces this issue so that when she leaves, she will leave knowing the one who healed her knows her. He cares for her, that she is a person who is worth taking time with. Jesus says to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. And it's stunning that Jesus takes the time to do this because these words, this dialogue would have been just as liberating for her as the physical healing. See, not only has her bleeding stopped, but think about the emotional weight of no one associating with her for years now lifted as Jesus takes time and calls her daughter. The unending years of stress and shame following her everywhere she went, labelled unclean, everything she'd sat on unclean, wiped away as Jesus announces before the crowd, this woman is freed from her suffering. That is that she can finally go in peace, 
living a new life because of her faith in Jesus, because Jesus had time for her. And that's all we hear about this woman. But more than being just this brief interlude in the middle of the story about Jairus' daughter and a different healing, this story shows us the grace and the love of Jesus toward people who know suffering. And maybe that our suffering isn't a physical illness like this woman. We're not supposed to be able to place ourselves exactly into the shoes of this woman as far as her physical healing experience goes. Rather, this story for us foreshadows the good news of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is healing from humanity's deepest suffering, that is, healing from sin. Sin is the one form of suffering which is experienced by all humanity. The woman's incurable bleeding in this story is a picture of the incurable nature of sin. See, sin renders us just as unrighteous before God as the woman's bleeding rendered her before the law. And just as no doctor could cure this woman of her bleeding, sin is incurable incurable by human methods. No effort, no striving, no good deed, no religion can save the sinner. In fact, such efforts only leave them worse off than before. But then comes Jesus. As he took this woman's condition, so he takes our sinful condition upon himself. When as a man, he chose to carry and pay the cost of every person's sin. He was nailed to the cross to die for us, for our forgiveness. Just as Jesus healed what no one could heal in this woman, so he healed our sins now. And just as he tells this woman, go, be free, liberating her from more than just her physical condition, so is our freedom from sin more than just cleaning the sin itself. It's total freedom from guilt, from shame, from all the defiling effects of sin. And as he called her daughter, so he calls us sons and daughters of God as well. We go in peace, freed from our suffering, because Jesus had time for us. And that's how this story shows uh, the kingdom of God, what it is like and who Jesus is and how he took time for this woman. But at this point, we're left wondering, well, what happened to Jairus' daughter? Because we still don't actually know. We're left hanging in the middle of that story. So remember that... uh, There we are. Oh, took a time. Remember that Jairus came before Jesus desperate. And like the bleeding woman, Jesus was the last hope for them. But unlike the bleeding woman, Jairus' daughter's condition was far worse. She was literally on death's door. And so Jesus doesn't seem to have been very good at triage here because surely it would be logical to go and heal the dying daughter first and then go back to the bleeding woman. And I think you can imagine how Jairus might have felt in that moment, watching Jesus just stop and turn around in the crowd and say, who touched me? And then stopping further to have this conversation with this random woman. And not only that, as he's watching this delay, Jairus starts to realize that Jesus has done the exact thing he wanted Jesus to do, but Jesus has done it for someone else. And whether or not Jairus is keeping his cool, we don't see from the story, but I imagine he's, he's at the very least stressed, confused, kind of a little bit angry, and he's thinking, come on, Jesus, we've got to go. And if it wasn't enough of a kick in the guts to watch all of this happen, to watch Jesus slow down and say, daughter, your faith has healed you, then verse 35 doesn't make the story any better for Jairus. Because while Jesus is still talking, some people come from Jairus' house and say to him, 
your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> I, I don't even know how Jairus would be processing this in this moment. He's standing there shocked and grieved. He can't comprehend it. He's looking at Jesus thinking, why didn't you heal my daughter? And the story at this point almost leaves us wondering, did the fact that Jesus stopped for this woman cost Jairus' daughter her life? Was the bleeding woman even that important? Jesus really seemed to think so. But then Jesus also doesn't seem to think that this issue is much to worry about either. Overhearing what they said, Jesus tells Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe. And there's a really interesting wordplay in the story here because the Greek word for believe, pistis, that Jesus uses in verse 36 is the same word that he has, had used for the woman in verse 34 when he said, your faith had healed you. He's connecting his ability to heal Jairus' daughter with the healing of this woman that he's already done. And however Jairus felt in that moment, he clung on to this faith and this hope. And so now when they come to the house... Jesus sees the commotion, people crying and wailing loudly. And it's quite normal in that culture to have professional mourners rock up as soon as someone's died and begin the mourning process. And of course, being professionals, they're not idiots. They know what dead is. So naturally, they laugh at Jesus when he goes in and says to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead. She's asleep. But even with all of their mocking, Jesus remains intent on taking time for Jairus' family and showing what the kingdom of God is like. So he puts these doubters outside. He takes Jairus', Jairus wife and a few of the disciples into the house, into the place where the child lay. It's important to remember here at this point that similar to the bleeding woman, a dead person is marked in Jewish law as a do not touch. Numbers 19, basically touching any human corpse instantly makes you unclean. But unafraid of this, Jesus takes the little girl by the hand and simply says, Talitha kum. And there's nothing special or magical about these words. They're pretty much just the normal words someone would use to wake up their sleeping daughter. Effectively, Jesus says, wake up. And immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. The sheer simplicity of Jesus' actions in this moment emphasize his power over death. It's such a simple command, but in that moment, the girl is restored to life. And at this, they were completely astonished. And so here, again, we see Jesus, the powerful Messiah, who is slowing down, loving people, showing what the kingdom of God is like. Once again, Jesus' touch is flipping things upside down. What is unclean is made clean. Sick is made well. Dead is made alive. Jesus taking time for people turns their fear into peace and their desperation into amazement and joy. This is his kingdom. As with the bleeding woman, this story foreshadows the gospel. It's a sign of what is to come in Jesus' story when people arrive at Jesus' tomb astonished to find it empty. Where his dead body once lay, it now lies no longer, for he has risen, he is alive. And it's not that we're all going to witness a resurrection precisely like this daughter situation, but the story points us to the promise of an eternal resurrection. Just as Jesus was not made unclean by touching the bleeding woman, he's not made unclean by touching death. This whole story about the bleeding woman, the dying daughter, it echoes a devastatingly painful yet beautiful and encouraging prophecy about Jesus in Isaiah 53. 
Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. See, Jesus was pure and holy and righteous. But yet he took on all of our sin and bore the punishment for it in his death. Yet because of his righteousness, God raised him to life, allowing him to conquer death. And so, just as the mourners had arrived to declare this girl dead, we were declared dead in our sins. And astonishingly, just as Jesus took this girl from death into life, so too he takes us from our spiritual death into new life. So, for all of humanity, these stories point us to the wonderful news in the gospel of Jesus, that we are freed from sin and we are raised to new life by faith in Jesus. And so what are we to do with this, this new life? Well, the main, the main imperatives of this story kind of focus on the new life. To the woman, Jesus says, go, be freed from your suffering. And to the daughter, he tells her to get up. These are the words Jesus spoke to these women as he called them into the new life of his kingdom. So as we go out and head into our busy weeks, we can be thinking about these stories, how they show us the kingdom of God, and consider in our daily lives how we've been saved by faith in Jesus and we are saved for time with Jesus. But before we consider that, I want to address the elephant that's left standing in the room. That is... The women in these stories experienced some amazing and miraculous healings when they had faith in Jesus. Does that mean that if we have enough faith, we too will be healed? And it's a tricky question to think about because I am sure many, if not all of you, have had times where you have prayed for God to heal yourself or someone else and he hasn't. So where do these stories about healing fit in with our experiences when healing doesn't happen? For us, this story isn't trying to teach us about a specific way to pray or act or an amount of faith we might need to convince God to heal us. As one commentator says of this story, one must be sensitive to the reality that no matter how genuine or desperate the faith, all are not healed or saved from death. See, while these stories teach us about Jesus' power over suffering, they remind us that there is this eternal significance to Jesus' power and Jesus' kingdom. As we said at the start, Jesus' kingdom is eternal and timeless. Uh, Whilst it has come in Jesus, there is more yet to come. In other words, the best is yet to come. So in the meantime, in our waiting, we may suffer from sickness and even death. But as the commentator continues, our faith is in God's power to conquer death, not simply to restore things as they were. That is, Jesus didn't come only to heal temporarily or to heal a temporary condition. While he does heal some temporary conditions, we have confident faith in the eternal God, in his eternal kingdom and his eternal agenda. That if we face any tragedies in our everyday existence, we know that God is not through with us. Our eternity is yet to come. And eternity is not just that God is simply going to undo all of human history back to the point of time like the Garden of Eden. He's not rewinding or hitting delete on all the past history of human suffering because, in fact, the goodness and grace and mercy of God were revealed so perfectly, so beautifully, and so majestically in the way that Jesus himself suffered on the cross 
as a human. And Herman Bavinck, a theologian, has a beautiful quote to sum up this idea. Christ gives more than sin stole. Grace gives us even more than we had before the fall. Jesus makes us by faith recipients of being unable to sin and unable to die. And I love that, that first line the most, that Christ gives more than sin stole. Grace gives us even more than we had before the fall. For any amount of suffering there may be here on earth now, grace will bring us to a place of even more life, even more joy, even more knowledge of God than there was before the Garden of Eden, in the Garden of Eden, before sin existed. See, so when we think back to the imperatives of this story, the go, the be freed, the get up, they're not about if you have enough faith, you'll be physically healed. They're the words Jesus has spoken to a restored people. They're the imperative of a new life. So with the knowledge that Jesus has restored us, that he has freed us from sin, we can again consider what we will do in this new and eternal life that Jesus has brought us into. So firstly, we've been saved by faith in Jesus. Consider how you will spend your time to grow your faith in him. Looking at the people in this story, we see they were completely astonished or or filled with amazement at what Jesus did. And I'll admit that, partly due to busyness, one of the hardest parts of this story for me was finding that same sense of amazement. Even though this is literally a story about God doing what is impossible and raising someone to life who was dead. So I wonder whether your reaction to Jesus is one of amazement. Or do you perhaps find that far too often when you have time in your day to read the Bible, that that sense of awe is hard to conjure or is trampled by busyness, by to-do lists and distractions? Well, can I encourage you today to keep going? Faith is built over time and your sense of amazement will grow the more you look at Jesus. So keep reading the Bible daily as much as you can. Keep praying, asking God to fill you with a sense of amazement, to help you place your faith in him. And take time where you can to ponder the wonderful things that you read about or that you see Jesus do. Let all of your time with Jesus build your faith in him. And so maybe today over coffee uh, you can talk to someone about uh, what makes reading the Bible hard or praying difficult. Uh, You can encourage each other in that or you can share stories about something you know from the Bible or you've seen God do just to encourage each other and help each other spend time to grow faith in him. And secondly, we've been saved for time with Jesus. So how will the hope of his eternal kingdom change our vision of our time on earth? See, in these stories we saw how Jesus had been living in tune with God's eternal agenda. And our faith in God isn't about this much faith means X much healing. It's about faith in the God who is over all of time, whose eternal agenda is trustworthy. And that's why Jesus healed these women, because even though they eventually died again, they were a testament to the sign, sorry, a testament and a sign. To the power and goodness of God. So when we read this story, when we go into our weeks thinking about it, consider are we so consumed by a worldly agenda, worldly priorities, that we're missing opportunities to work in God's timing, to enjoy his eternal agenda? 
So also, while you're having coffee or maybe when you're driving home, starting your week tomorrow, you can consider how you too will set your sights on eternity and take time to do good for God's kingdom in your time here on earth. Let me pray for us in all of this. Our amazing Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word which shows us the wonderful things you did while you were on this earth with us. Jesus, thank you for taking time out of eternity to live a life among your people, for showing us what your kingdom is like by bringing hope and life and peace and healing and wisdom everywhere you went. Most of all, we thank you for going to the cross, for bearing our sins, taking our unrighteousness and making us clean and righteous before God, for rising again and bringing new life to your creation. We praise you and we thank you for all of these amazing things you have done. Help us to see and hear the truth of these things in our weeks ahead. Give us time to read your word and eyes to see and be amazed at who you are as we do. Encourage us in our busy lives. Strengthen us with a vision of your kingdom in eternity that we might do good works in our days, however busy we might be. And in your name, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.